When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Welcome to another Breathless.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today I've got with me founder of Raindance, Elliot Grove. Good well, morning. Great to be here in this chilly basement studio here in Charing Cross, the so-called Raindance Film Centre. <laughs> well, the glamour of filmmaking. <laughs> the glamour of filmmaking, indeed. Um, yeah. Well, the reason we're here is celebrating the 25th anniversary of Raindance. The, the ball for Raindance was early this week from when we're recording it, so uh, what are we, the morning after the morning after? It is the night before. 48 hours after the night before, <laughs> we're still feeling the, uh, the alcohol slowly draining out of the system and um, the tinnitus from the band is slowly fading, but yeah. So how was that, just, uh, just before we go into any detail, how was that then as a celebration? Were you there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course you were there, I saw you. Uh, almost a thousand people showed up. Yeah, yeah, it was busy. It was very busy. <laughs> People were dancing like mad. I, I hate throwing parties because I'm always glad when they're over, when there's been no injuries, deaths, or other events. <laughs> But people seem to be having a good time until 2 o'clock in the morning, so that's a success, they tell me. Yeah. Indeed, indeed. And we didn't lose any money for a change, which was another... <laughs> <laughs> oh, the British film industry. <laughs> so, so what I thought we'd do is, for, given, it's, given it's the 25th anniversary, is get from you what you think, since, since the outset, have been sort of 10 moments mm. in Raindance's history that have got us to 25 years, and obviously... Hopefully another 25 years after that. Well, how I started, I guess, is the main thing. I was doing... I'd gone personally bust in 91, and um, that New Year's Eve, I made a decision to do something difficult in my life. I had no money. I had no experience. I had no film training. I didn't even go to university. And I decided that New Year's Eve, 1991, to start Raindance as a thought experiment. Could I, or anyone, make a movie with no money, no training or no experience. And I bumped into a young, late teenager at the time named Edgar Wright. He was my first intern for nine months. 
And then about a year or so later, I met a very late teenager who at that time was studying English at UCL. And he was studying English at UCL against his will because at 16 he had told his mom and dad he wanted to be a filmmaker and they said, what <laughs> do you want to do that for? And so as a deal with mom and dad, he, he agreed to get a degree in case the filmmaking lark didn't work out. Yeah. Joined the film society, started making short films, that's yeah. when I met him with the free gear. He graduated, got a really dumb job at Boots the Chemist in Piccadilly, which is still there if you want to do a pilgrimage. Um, <laughs> And then uh, he would, every Friday night, he would circle past the free film equipment store at UCL, come to my office then in Barrack Street in Soho, I was there for 18 years. I'd give him the key and he'd shoot Friday night, Saturday, Sunday, Monday morning, he'd give me back the key and go back to Boots. <laughs> and he did that every single weekend for nine whole months, making a film called Following, which he essentially remade 18 months later as Memento, and of course, Chris Nolan is probably the biggest name in the film. Yeah, certainly for British filmmakers, yeah. For a British filmmaker, definitely the biggest. Anyway, so I did that, I did that for about nine months, I, and I was doing training courses, and Edgar was helping me carrying the boxes in and out of the different venues. And I had 100 quid left over, uh, it's now January, February uh, 1993, and I decided, let's do a film festival. And... I had been, someone had given me that year's Cannes product guide from mm. 92, and I went through and circled all the films I thought would be interesting. Of course, they had fax numbers in the days before emails. I had 100 quid. I was sharing an office with a graphic designer at the time, and he let me put a one-page press release through the fax machine to my 100 quid ran out. Oh, really? <laughs> and the film showed up, and that's, we had the first Rain Dance Film Festival. <laughs> so, so, so let's rewind there. So, you, so as a thought experiment was yeah. the idea so this like we're going to do something that's going to orbit the film's going to orbit yeah. and then nine months or so down the line the festival was born yeah oh, okay yeah so we had at the ball the 25th year anniversary mm. of rain dance starting but the festival didn't start for another year till 93 which means i've got another 18 months to celebrate 25 years <laughs> <laughs> you're like the queen <laughs> like the queen goes on and on and on um so year one happened we were at um the Prince Charles Cinema, and at the old Plant Hollywood in Leicester Square, if you remember that. Mm. Year three, oh my God, I had no money. We were at the Comedy Store and, uh, and at the Prince Charles, but we had a third venue, which was the basement of the Arts Theatre Club on Wardour Street or mm. Dean Street. We were so broke, our seminars and panels happened in there with 30, 40 people, and when they wanted to show a film, we stretched a bedsheet across the wall. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> that's, that's how it really got going. And then that was going for about five years. And by the way, British people absolutely hated the fact that I was doing a film festival. Because you Brits, pardon me, Stuart, are snobs. Oh, wait. And you looked at those early posters and you didn't see a big brand sponsor or government logo. And then you probably did some research and found, oh my God, it's being run by Canadian. They're <laughs> how really, dare you? They're really sneaky. They love stealing cheese. And so I was pretty much ignored those first um, seven years, really. British filmmakers didn't want to put their films in. I mean, a lot of Brits did, like Gareth Edwards, now famous, his first short short at Raindance during mm. that period of time, lots and lots of people like that. But the industry absolutely loathed and abhorred Raindance. And it's, you know, I'm looking at Uber and some of these other startups right now, these uh, challenging brands, disruptive, and what happens in the course of any good idea, and it's really the same with the filmmaker when we have a new idea, 
the industry, their establishment absolutely shit on you because they don't want to be challenged or they feel pissed off, they haven't thought about it first and then you go into a survival period and at the end of the survival period two things happen, you either sink like the new producers alliance in the UK film council and so many other people over the time or you figure out how to achieve not only financial stability but um, a credibility and then what happens over the course of time the next generation the old establishment crumbles the the disruptor moves in and then the cycle repeats that's sort of what happens and it rain dance after 25 years we're still in the survival period I think. <laughs> although we've uh, we've achieved some industry acclaim. In 1995 we had the very first website. Uh, we were one of only 30 companies in the UK at the time that had a website. Uh, it was four pages long. I looked at it the other day. It's quite stupid. Five, yeah, that's, a, that's, that's it's it's the first time I came across the internet, I think, and that was yeah. just like, wasn't anything to do with me. Somebody yeah. just showed me, like, there's the internet. Yeah, and then I did the festival for five long, uh, lean years, and then I'm still a bit annoyed that the Brits didn't um, take to the festival. That first year we had What's Eating Gilbert Grape, the first ever screening in the world, okay. uh, or in Europe actually, a, a page for screening of What's Eating Gilbert Grape. So the international community thought it was pretty cool to have a festival right in the centre of London. Of course. And I timed it, there was a, a weird gap week. Uh, I get a phone, I want to do a festival, I told a friend of mine in LA that I was doing a festival, and then he calls me and he said, look I'm getting married, uh, can you book a hotel? Uh, for me and my bride, wife-to-be, to stay at. And I was just walking up Piccadilly past the Meridian Hotel, the big expensive hotel that's mm. still there, and I walked in and looked around, and there's all these copies of Screen International of Hollywood Variety on the table, and there's David Aachen, and there's Weinstein, and all these people are huddling. And I did some research, this was in uh, October 92, mm. and I realized that that was the week between the then MeFed market, then there was a gap week, and then there was a week called um, MEPTV in, in Cannes. Yeah. And so these European and Asians who knew they had to come to Europe for MEP or, 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 or MeFed, the big yeah. film market, they had this week to kill. They probably came with their lovers or whatever, and they thought, let's go to London. Honey, you can go out shoplifting. I'm going to stay here in the hotel and talk to my mates here. Ooh. So when I started the festival, that's the week I chose because it became a very important um, industry we called London Screenings, which we started really. Okay. And 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 that's why Raindance has become such an important industry. Man, over sixty percent of our features have had a distribution deal over the years, and I should promote that because I don't think anything's higher than that. And no, no, Sundance. No. That's not even, people that come on my podcast. The hardest thing is not making a film anymore. The hardest Sunny. thing is getting it seen. Yeah. Yeah, and, and we did that for, for nine years until I, uh, MIFED then uh, collapsed uh, and uh, I went to the then UK Film Council and they said, well, you know, I want support it, we'll do screenings. And they said, nah. And so I stopped doing it formally, although we still have lots and lots of acquisitions, executives came. I could show you, Stuart, I could find it somewhere in the next room in the archives, um, the list of... 1,200 film buyers who came that last year to Raindance to the screenings, wow. market screenings. It was quite remarkable, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was suffered a bit of um, angst, and then five years after the festival, I decided, you know, Brits are so talented. By then, there's quite a few British filmmakers who were... Uh, 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 Nolan's following was Sundance, 97 or 98, uh, 
and, and they weren't getting any recognition here, especially the, the low budget, the independent crowd, the ones working outside of the industry. Yeah. So I thought, well, let's start an award show to celebrate British independent filmmaking, and of course, what do you call it? Well, we'll call it the Independent Film Awards, and then, although I am Canadian, I've lived here by that time for quite a number of years, so let's call it the British Independent Film Awards, which yeah. we did that first year at the old cafe. The Biffers. Uh, the Biffers, yeah. <laughs> uh, and that first year, um, Ken Loach was there, a friend of mine who was up for short recognition, uh, cussed uh, Ken Loach and Peter Mullen jumped up and punched the crap out of him. Another friend of mine snuck off from the men's room to do a line, which is wrong, but Vinnie Jones saw him and called the cops. And my friend, another lawyer, got him out of the building and there was fistfights because somebody had nicked someone's girlfriend or boyfriend. It was quite a brawl, but the Biffers have, have grown to become quite an event. This is, is it 19 or 18 years? 19 years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 19. 18 years now, 19, I forget, it's, it's a long time. Um, and then in 98, also, we did the first cinema trailer where we, I got a friend with a blagged 35mm camera, got some recans, and we shot a trailer under an arch in Camden. Hmm. And we got that into a whole bunch of cinemas in the UK. And we've been doing that every year since. Uh, uh, the very next year, 1999, I really lucked out. This was the first tipping point that really got us noticed. I managed to secure the first paid-for festival screening in Europe of The Blair Witch Project. And Daniel Myrick and uh, Gonzalez, what's his name? Oh, the two directors showed up and it was a celebrity-packed screening. Um, we did back-to-back -back screenings at the old Metro Cinema on Rupert Street, sadly gone. And the first one was celebrity only. Nobody bought a ticket. We, we had oh, the Spice Girls, Billy Zane. We had uh, oh, just... For Blair uh, Witch? Yeah, to the Blair Witch. Because everyone knew about it and they didn't want to faint. And they, they wanted to faint. They wanted to go to see it with a mate. Yeah. So and McGregor, all these people came. But there was an emergency exit. You could have taken them up the back up the street. But all my mates now who bought tickets were waiting in the lobby, so I made them all push to the side. <laughs> <laughs> and all these celebrity crowd walks took about 40 minutes to get them out. <laughs> and my friends told me since it was, a, it's like going to um, Madame Tussauds, all these quite well-known yeah, yeah, yeah. faces going out. So we did that, and that really... Do you remember how you, how you were able to secure it then, if you had such kudos at that point when you got it? Yeah, I made friends with the managing director of the distribution company that owned the UK rights. Her name was Maybrett Kirshner, sadly now retired. She's like a grandmother with Lederhosen and climbs mountains on the weekends. Uh, and she was running Pathé at the time. Okay. Yeah, and at that screening, the, a German distributor bought the... German rights for a million dollars. They had paid a million dollars for the European rights. Yeah. And I don't know if you remember, their only marketing campaign was a little silver pin oh, of the thing. Oh, right, to, okay, okay. I wore one for ages after that. People keep saying, ah, oh, that's the film where people fainted. And I could tell you another time the whole Blair Witch story, how they yeah, yeah, yeah. got going at Sundance and how they... Well, basically, they crammed the audience full of their friends, 1,500 seats, but that cinema in Sundance does not have a centre aisle. It's one of those wide 35 seats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the old, like the old Empire, at least. Yeah, yeah, like the old Empire. So what they did is they had about 20 acquisition executives interested in the film. The week before, uh, they start this uh, whispering campaign, Where's Heather? 
And on the, the Tuesday of Sundance that year, front cover of the Times was Heather Blair, which Prozac, true, true or false. So now all the acquisition executives who never heard of it bought tickets, but not sold out. Mm. He actually gave a hope about three or four hundred filmmakers in Sundance 20 bucks to stand in the returns queue from 6 o'clock at night for the midnight screening <laughs> to buy donuts and coffee. <laughs> because you know when you invite people, they don't show up. Of course. So it's now totally packed. And we've had totally packed screenings at Raindance. And there's a magic to walk in a cinema where your seat is the only empty seat. <laughs> <laughs> so what they did next, which is genius, is they, they put in what's called the golden row that's where you sit down, your eyes are dead center of the screen. Every cinema's got one, and the manager, the, they know which one that is. They put the execs in that row, and that was row 13 in the cinema. And in row 11, row 9, and row 7, right in the middle, they put a scantily clad female who was told to faint at the three key moments of the film, and of course, because there's no center aisle, they had to be body surfed out to St. John's Ambulance. <laughs> and that's how, that's how the, the myth of, you know, oh, if you, I don't want to see the why not, it's people faint in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the story they told me when they came to... Uh, yeah, yeah, no, 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 it's brilliant. <laughs> so we did that, and then, and then um, the year later, we had Memento, Chris Nolan. I give him and his family 20-odd uh, tickets, and they're sitting there in the golden row. And at the end, he rushes to the front like you do to milk your 15 seconds of Warhol. But I got another sold-out screening for the same film, so now i got to get him out up the center aisle. And I saw him walking up the center aisle. I was right behind him with his mom, arm in arm. Mm. And I heard with my own ears Chris Nolan's mother saying to Chris Nolan, Chris, what an amazing movie. What was it about? <laughs> <laughs> so these are the things I remember. Um, um, uh, we also started a production company in 2006. We made a movie called The, the Living and the Dead, which did very well. Hmm. Uh, and then we did another one um, a couple of years ago called Deadly Virtues, which has sold almost 10,000 DVDs here in the UK. And we've sold rights all around the world. Showed, sold the remake rights to Japan. Oh, and really? Korea, Russia, and so on. It's just about breaking even now. Yeah, we had, we had actor Jean Don on the podcast talking about the film. I mean, I, I, I reviewed it when it played at Frankfest. Um, oh, it was you that reviewed it? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I couldn't come to that screening because I was called off to TIFF Toronto. I was in Toronto that weekend, yeah. It was a, I mean, I thought it was a fantastic film. I mean, give it, and, and you know, you can see it's a film that's made on a, on a, with a constrained budget, but actually there's a lot happening and a lot of your expectations are yeah. not met. You're surprised. There's lots of nice reversals in it in terms yeah. of your average... Home invasion movie for yeah. Did you see a moral a moral arc in the story? Yeah. Where the husband turns out to be a dick. Oh yeah, yeah, no, that's the thing. It's kinda of like you, you, you your assumption is this is the bad guy is the one whose point of view we're getting of the couple. <laughs> and then obviously as we grow into the story, spoiler uh -huh. anybody. Remind me when we finish Stuart, I'll give you a copy of the DVD if oh, you don't have one. Yeah, no, in the no, next no. room here. Yeah. Um, so in 2007, um, we've always had a strong music strand. We've had people like Iggy Pop and Marky Ramon as jurors in the past. And in 2007, we had a, a guitar player you may have heard of called Mick Jones. <laughs> and Mick is an amazing guy. He's working with a lot of young bands and young talent. And when he touched Raindance and saw what we were doing, he was totally thrilled. He came to almost all the screenings and almost all the parties. 
And there was one particular movie, I'll never forget, I was sitting right behind him, and now we're at the, the old Cine World, it's now uh, Picture House Central, um, screening, sold out screening of a movie called Once. At that time, totally unheard of. The Irishman? Yeah. Okay. And, um, and Glenn and Marquetta, the guy and the girl, were there, and, and Mick was enthralled by this film. And at the end, they stood up and did a Q&A and sung five songs, just using the house PA from the, you know, the, really? the crappy mic. And the sound filled the cinema absolutely magic. I then met Mick Jones, bumped into him in the streets of Soho about two weeks later. And he said, how are you doing? And he said, you know that song? You couldn't remember, softly, rising slowly, uh, that song with they sing at the piano in the store. He said, I said, yeah. He said, I just can't get that tune out of my head. <laughs> and of course, that won the Oscar for best song. So yeah. that was kind of cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was very cool to touch Mick Jones. I haven't seen him much since. Um, do, you, do you get, do you know, when, you, when, you, when films like that come along, I mean, obviously, you're, you're, you're absorbed in volumes of films as much as you are these highlights you're getting. Do you get a sense when you see it? You know from the, the first frame. You know yeah. from the first frame. Almost always you know from the first frame. Uh, uh, we, we, I mean, I personally, I'm not working programming anymore, but I used to always uh, know, I used to say I could know in 20 minutes. You, you almost know, the programmers now watch, uh, Suzanne watched last year's 735 features. It's hmm. a lot. Oh, it is. And she says she, she can tell by watching the opening title sequence. Yeah. You just get a feel for it, the music, the ambience, and so on. Um, there are films that, that are slow burn that, you know, the first 10, 12 minutes, or like Deadly Virtues, I've had people say the first 20 minutes are like horrible. I nearly turned it off. In fact, many do. But yeah, if you yeah. stick with it, it, at the end, there's yeah. a big payoff. No, there is indeed. A big payoff. Yeah. You almost always know from get-go. It's a bit like you've you're got your your headphones on or you're in a car and you listen to the radio and song after song after song, totally forgettable, but all of a sudden a new song starts playing, you usually know what the first four bars, whether or not you mm. like it, whether it appeals to you. And um, anyway, that was that. Um, we then branched out into, in 2011, we started a postgraduate film degree Mm. Very, very different from any other film degree in the world. I had that idea in 2006. It took me five years to find a university, in this case, Staffordshire. Um, my idea was it was work-based, that you didn't really sit in a classroom and you, you were assigned a mentor or an advisor or both, mm. a bit like rain dance in your pocket. So these are working filmmakers who would sit with you and say, hey, really, that screenplay? I tried that, it didn't work, or that's a good idea. Or you want to do as a web fest or whatever. So mm. it's a very, very flexible uh, degree. We have now 150 students, half in London, half online around the world. It's the, actually the largest film MA in Britain, wow. believe it or not. <laughs> so how, how do you, I mean, how do you do, do you design that then if it's not kind of in the classroom base? Well, classroom? there's modules. In yeah. each module, you have to complete some shit and you've yeah. got deadlines and you get marked like, like school. Yeah. But the difference is you get to design the module. So you might say to me, Stuart, um, uh, you might say to me, I want to I turn these podcasts into some sort of web series using visual elements, but I've never shot much and I want to learn how to direct. So we'd set up all, so for this stage, let's agree that you're going to learn this or study that or whatever. And at the end, you're going to deliver 
you know, an artifact, a web series or a movie or a script or a okay or a virtual branching to VR now too, which is which is awesome. I'm yeah, just yeah. head fucked that is. Um, so we did that, and also at that point, I realized back in 2011 when we launched the um, postgraduate. I'd done a lot of research in other film schools and looking at the curriculum, yeah. and I realized that most, if not all, other film schools teach filmmaking. Mm. But we don't, you see, we make filmmakers, so everything's about how do you do something so you can monetize your work in this harsh economic climate. So yeah, it's yeah, a yeah. very different strategy. You still need the craft, of course, but mm. we focus on the... Uh, on, 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 on the career, or the shape of it, and we've had we have a cinematographer, he's 70 years old, he's just graduated, uh, he's shot Clint Eastwood's first two films, and he was, he needed the piece of paper so he could teach, but he was the guy that worked with Kubrick back in the day, designing low-budget uh, lighting, because Kubrick never had enough money. It's... And what of that stuff, 40 years ago, translates into what you're trying to do now. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. No. And, and all the social media, and... We had a girl, Asian girl here, uh, late 20s, comes in one day before Christmas, crying her eyes out. I said, what's wrong? She lives above a chip shop with mom and dad, hmm. strict Asian. And they said, well, you're still single. You've got to meet this guy Friday night and another guy every Friday night until you find the one. Jesus. And she knew these guys. Uh, and so I said to her, you mean it's forced marriage? She, she said, no, it's arranged marriage. So I, I said, well, that's bad too, isn't it? That's semantics, isn't it? <laughs> but she knew, she knew I, I have two single daughters of marrying age, as they say back home. She said, don't you ever say to your daughters you should meet this guy? I said, yeah, all the time. I keep saying, why, why don't they come to rain dancing? Me, cool guys like Stuart, if he's single, maybe whatever. She said, well, kind of the same thing. So at that point, she was working on writing and directing a horror film. Mm -hmm. But she's now changed the MA and turned it into web series. And she's taking a two-man film crew to each of her Friday night dates. <laughs> Out of the threat comes an opportunity. <laughs> and it's going to release it as a web series. Wow. And, of course, she didn't know anything about social media, so she's just taken three months to learn about social media and marketing and ad rev and all that shit. Okay. And, and got her Twitter and Facebook going. That's the kind of thing you and I would watch for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you're, so, you, so it's kind of like what you're saying is it's, it's, it, it, it represents an academic, an academic course of a journey, but actually... It's a very practical route that you're taking based on yeah. what you want to do as opposed to... Yeah, and today's film industry is very different from 25 years ago. 25 years ago, you needed to shoot on celluloid, almost always 35. You mm. needed a million, rough or less, more or less, to make a film. You made the film. You would almost certainly get a, a VHS or DVD release in the mm. day, and then you would get in cinemas, everyone would get their money back because there were so few films being made. Yeah. And then, of course, Rodriguez made um, El Mariachi the year before he started Raindance, for what seventy five hundred dollars, whatever, and mm. change the low budget thing. Yeah, and people like Edgar and 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 Chris Nolan's first film, few thousand pounds were made for. Really, mm. at that time, we were all trying to see who could make a film cheaper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so, um, the guy in Clark's, um, he said, you know, Kevin he's, Smith. Kevin yeah. Smith sees Slacker, and he goes, "Oh, that's what you can do." Yeah, and so, yeah. and it was like a bit of a that late eighties, early nineties was where people were suddenly yeah. thinking, "How do we really do low budget films?" Yeah. It was putting a finger up to the um, to the industry with all the the closed shop stuff, and and again we were all disruptors, yeah. I guess if you want to call that. And then of course you make your film for no money. How do you get it out there? 
you go to the festivals, but at the time the festivals were very allergic to um, low-budget films. They wanted stars and shit. And, and when films came to them outside the industry, they weren't really sure if their brand, if you like, would survive showing a controversial film like Slackers or Rodriguez or whatever. Mm. But, but that quickly changed because uh, the festivals are far enough removed from the distributors that... That the distributors then start coming to festivals to see what I was going to say. Find. It's interesting the journey then, because if you think that was maybe the resistance then, I remember a couple of years ago going to a talk at Cannes about how film festivals could be now key to film distribution, yeah. or, or in fact are the yeah. distribution chain themselves. Yeah, you know, if you can get a film shown around yeah. the world in festivals, yeah, that's a presence that most films won't get. That's true. If you don't already subscribe to Britflix. Just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. So what, what I mean, from your experience then, I mean, for the listener who's maybe never been to a film festival, what's the difference between watching a film at a film festival and going to your local flea pit art house or even cineplex. What's the difference? Well, those uh, the, the flea pits and the, the the big multiplexes show Hollywood. Basically, they show films with a lot of marketing budget behind them. Mm. Um, festivals are the films that do not have any marketing yet. In fact, they they there's usually a first look. Mm. About a third of the films over the years, and we've shown. I knew you were coming this morning. We've shown roughly 2,200 features and six or 7,000 shorts over the wow. years. It's a lot. Very few, if any, of those had any marketing budget. A third of them, at least, were world premieres. A mm. third were international premieres, and all were British premieres. So, yeah, yeah. so these are films that haven't got people talking about them yet. There's no buzz, as we mm. call it. There's no viral nature to it. Yeah, yeah. And... Oh, it breaks my heart too. Some of my favorite films at Raindance over the years are ones that the best films have sunk without trace after the Raindance screening because no distributor knew about it or picked it up. I was sitting in a, a screening back in the nineties uh, called Week at Denise, hmm. uh, a comedy. The audience was full of the international crowd. A lot of the filmmakers came. They're all rolling with laughter. And at the end of the head bar from Channel 4 said, well, we're not interested. And I said, well, why not? She said, we don't think it's funny to a British audience. And there was a British audience, so they're laughing their yeah, asses yeah, yeah. off, you know. And that film just went straight to whatever the filmmaker wouldn't have made a penny. Hmm. I could tell you many stories like that. I mean, I, mean, I came to, in 2009, I came to the Rain Dance introduction to screenwriting, the five weeks. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. In that, you talked about, um, you told the story about Slumdog Millionaire yeah. and how that was kind of lost to the wind, wasn't it? And yeah. And yeah. that was a film you showed. Well, we had that, at, we didn't show the film, but we had the film at the British Independent Film Awards and that yeah. Sunday, Danny Boyle walks in mm. and it's the day after the Mumbai hotel uh, tragedy with hundreds of people killed. Right. And lots of paparazzi there, lots of cameras, CNN and so on. And he said to every camera of the world, they asked him, uh, what about this? And he said, well, Mumbai is a strong city. It will survive. And now the Indian social media starts chattering that night. This is wow. about 7 o'clock our time. Yeah. And by 10 o'clock at night, he'd won three awards, best film, best, best director, best screenplay. Uh, and now Indian press is really going mad. And then the Americans go, what? And then they start chattering. And then he gets 
the company had sunk into administration in America that owned his uh, rights of the film. He told me that night he thought it was going straight to DVD. Yeah, yeah, I remember you saying this. That was amazing, that. Yeah, and that this chatter, 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 and suddenly, boom, and it, seven or nine or whatever it was, Oscar wins against 11 nominations. It was yeah. just a phenomenal story. Whenever I, <laughs> whenever I pass cross Danny, sometimes I see him, he's walking through the street. We sat and chat and have a chuckle about that. And, it, and, and probably without Biffa, it may have just gone straight to DVD. Mm. I don't want to take credit for that, mm. uh, Biffa. But, it's a moment in the journey, isn't it? But, but the whole point of the festival, the whole point of the film awards, is to cast a bit of spotlight on all mm. this undiscovered talent. Mm. And, um, you know, you, you, you'll hear, uh, Stuart, people saying such and such was discovered at Sundance or discovered at Cannes. And the word discovered, what that really means is somebody gave that person money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When, you know, when you are discovered, it will mean someone's giving you a big fat check so you can get the day job and do Britflix full time, you see, <laughs> right? No, yeah, no, no. Totally. Yeah. And you can, you as a filmmaker can really only be discovered once. It's a bit like virginity. Although you could be rediscovered as Tarantino rediscovered uh, Travolta and blah blah blah. Yeah. Um, but there's other filmmakers like Weinstein who makes a, a habit or a, a, of discovering new talent. Well, I, I, you know, if you think if you think where where they started with a slasher film in the eighties and where they are now, like you know, sort of. Did you ever see, Did you ever see Diva? Their yeah. first big breakout hit, yeah. yeah. He, he was in Cannes and, and bought this French film and took it back, and, and that was their first hit. That, well, hit. It was an art house yeah. hit at the time. That would have been... I was still living in Toronto, mid-'80s, I guess. Uh, yeah, but very good eyes. Mm. And also a, a very eccentric man, but, but anyway... You, me you mentioned that um, you... you what year was it you started on production? No, uh, 2006. So what was so as a film festival then? What was the logic for a film festival organisation to move into film production? What it wasn't. It wasn't the logic of the festival. It was the logic of the training program. Okay. Because people wanted to make films, and and when that first film was made, we had so many people we'd met through the training courses, who had um, skills. You always need people to do stuff. Everything course, from yeah. camera down to carrying heavy boxes. <coughs> yeah. So we had this wealth of talent, and those are the people we used to get on Deadly Virtues. Mm. And on that film, I'm pleased to see, we, we, we did not reach any of the UK employment laws. Everyone got minimum wage. Oh, well done. And the total budget was still just under 60 grand. Mm. Well, you've seen the film, it's 60 yeah, yeah. grand. Oh, yeah, 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 no, it's, it's, it's good value for that. Yeah. Um. So it's a, yeah, tricky business. Um, we did the first independent filmmakers ball in 2014 is it that recent <laughs> that was our third year okay, the other night and and we're doing it again it's always two weeks to the day before can was the logic behind that I, I, I don't know why and um wednesday wednesday night Stuart, before you showed up i met the manager of the cafe du prix and booked it for a another ball on the monday the 31st of october okay what day is that that's halloween and we're going to call it the Filmmaker's Masked Ball. Oh, very nice. Very nice. <laughs> or the Filmmaker's Costume Ball. I don't know, something like that. <laughs> what, 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 what are you thinking there? People like getting dressed up. You were there the other night. The yeah, girls yeah. really get, they clean up pretty good, yeah. don't they? The guys too. And yeah, yeah. I, I wore a jacket and a shirt. I was all right. <laughs> 
And and to come as your favorite movie character, or or you know, I found yesterday websites where you can buy paper mache for like Venetian masks with the little handle. Oh right! And you can paint them up yourself at home, and maybe <laughs> maybe that's what you do. You know. So, so what do you what, in twenty five years then? What do you think has been the sort of biggest change in in film for you? What what have you what have you seen that that kind of the rules of the game when you started mm-hmm. and the rules of the game now? What would yeah. you say? Uh, two key dates. Two key dates are February fifteenth, two thousand and five. It's a date no one talks about in the film industry. It's the date that everyone should be talking about because that's the day the three co-founders of YouTube registered the URL for YouTube.com, right. and you can check that out on whois.com, the registry. Right. It took them nine months to get it up. Six months later, they sold it to eBay, and with that, changes the way people watch films on internet. Yeah. That's a huge thing. We talk about the digital revolution and cameras and all that shit. That's true. That's important. It's reduced the cost of filmmaking, which is good. It's also bad because it means there's so much content. It's so hard to sift through it. But I think the launch of YouTube and online distribution is key. I mean, we tried for a couple of years in 2007 to rain TV, and we just couldn't make it work mm. because the big boys basically it's a big barrier to entry, basically. That's the, that's the uh, one big key date. The second key date was, where we, April, November 2015. Mm. The third week in November, on a Tuesday, the New York Times released a free virtual reality app. Right. Loaded with 10 or 12 VR films they commissioned. And the following Saturday on the east coast of America, if you bought a New York Times, in it was a flat pack Google Cardboard, you know, the fold-up visor you put your phone in. Okay. And up, you see, virtual reality has been around with us since the 80s. It was going to be the next big thing, but it sort of faded. Mm. Then 3D came in. And between 1988 and recently, the only three companies interested in VR were the U.S. military. Right. NASA. Okay, well that makes sense. And Disney. <laughs> Those are the only three people researching it, the effective people and motion illness and all that. Hmm. But when the New York Times released that, the third weekend, I should look up the date. Um, you still get it, I, I use it all the time. Every week they put a new VR video up. So when Hillary Clinton won Ohio, whatever it was, oh. you could be like in the room and see Hillary at the front and the people cheering around the back and everything. It's just. Does this mean then, in terms of like, if you think of the cinema experience now, which is one broadcast to many people sat in the room or a handful of people in the living room or sitting room or whatever watching on a big telly, you're, it sounds like with virtual reality you're going towards the. Individual experience. You can't be sat in the same room. I mean, friends of mine run the silent disco where you put headphones on and yeah. you're on a room, but you can switch channel. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. So the room's quiet, but you're listening to a channel. Yeah. Where, and VR, obviously, if you cover your face up, yeah. the shared experience of watching a film isn't the same. No. But maybe you, if at the festival you see maybe 100 people come to the VR screenings we're planning, in, sponsored by Lexus, by the way. Okay. Uh, and maybe there's, uh, there's only 15 headsets and the 15 chairs in the center, and those are the people experiencing it, and now you've got to uh, consume the alcoholic beverages or whatever mm. mood-altering substances <laughs> or conversation or networking, and then sit in the chair and have your 10 minutes on the chair and, and then talk about the experience afterwards. And then Kirbin Kassan, one of our MA tutors, he's a um, producer in his own right, a few weeks ago at BAFTA had an uh, interactive film where you walk in, you download the free app, mm. 
the movie starts, and at the, in this particular movie, there's 22 different times where the audience votes to see what happens next. And there's always two or three options. Hmm. So the very first scene, a guy is about to get in an underground parking garage, is about to get in his Porsche, and a girl comes up and says, oh, I need to borrow your car. Hmm. Now, a timeline starts going in 30 seconds. You have to vote. Should he give her the car keys? Should he say yes, but I need some money? Hmm. Or should he go with her? And then the majority wins, and then you have the next decision. So the script is a single page, and then it goes to three or four pages, depending on it, and then more and more and more. And at the ending, there's eight different, in this particular movie, eight different endings. Everything from extreme, they both die, hmm. to they live happily ever after, and you end up at that ending depending what choices you made. Hmm. Now this is a cinema experience, majority vote, but it's actually designed to be seen on your tablet or your, your laptop. An individual experience. Sounds like a video game. It is a video game. Mm. It is like a video game. And the, a lot of the learning we're finding for the VR work we're doing now, because mm. we have a VR strand this year, that's, that's the, the, the VR thing last year just opened my eyes. And although we've had Oculus, whatever, for four years in talks, uh, this year we're going for a full VR strand. We've got a whole bunch of uh, mm. projects submitted already, and we're going a whole day of experiences at the Century Club and then panels and discussions mm. at the cinema on what the fuck it is. Um, <laughs> But the storytelling you see of how, how you use virtual reality, um, uh, we, we, you have to learn from gaming and from immersive theatre. Yeah, I mean, I, I've, I took part in um, Yumi Bum Bum Train, the experiential thingy, and that's like, I was one of the volunteers on the set as well as I went through it, went through uh -huh. it first. Uh -huh. And it's like being in a dream. Yeah. And then when you're in it, you repeat the same process when people come through, but obviously how they react yeah. is different every time. Well, I don't know if they told you when you set up this interview, but did you know I had open-heart surgery last week? No. In this very room. <laughs> I, they came, two people, a guy and a gal come in, and I put on an operating smock. I couldn't help notice it was covered in blood. And right. then we folded up one of these tables, and, and I sat on it, and I put on a headset and a microphone, a headphones, and I lay down. And you see the nurse coming towards to take your pulse. And you actually, someone act physically actually touches your wrist. Right, okay, okay. And all this so, is going on. So 4D then, aren't we? We're in that and Stuart, I'm very lucky to be here because about five minutes in, five Russian soldiers with submachine guns came down the hallway. <laughs> but fortunately, I noticed a pistol on the table beside me oh, and I could actually shoot them and kill them and they dropped dead. <laughs> so who, were the, who was the people behind that? Oh, a couple, oh God, it's a... This was an MA thesis from some uh, some less worthy university in the They're going to be doing this at the festival too. Okay, cool. But that's interesting because it's a, a, a definitely a one-person experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then it's actually fun to watch it. The person's... There was a time, Stuart, I was so scared. The door opened. I had to push it shut because if I couldn't close it, a monster was going to come out. This is you and the virtual reality you're talking about. Well, well it's, it's split because some... I mean... You saw a door handle, and you had instructions to open the door. And you open it, and this monster comes out, close it, and you push And they actually had a fake door panel, yeah, the yeah, handle yeah. that you're pushing. Yeah, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> so so the, all these different story techniques, and the thing that I've found in my, my quarter century now, and my gray hair gives it away a bit, they, everyone says it's new. But it's not. Mm. This is as old as the hills. Right. 2,000 years ago, ancient Rome. 
Saturday, oh, honey, let's go to the Colosseum, and you're met by the minstrels as you approach the, the building, and um, it's just different, you know, it's a different machine. Mm. Like, the projector isn't the big, whirring projector up in the sound booth anymore. It mm. is your, your internet connection or your, mm. you know, it's, yeah, the, the, the basic things are the same, and if you want to make money, you've got to think of your film as a shop and you need to get people walking by the front window. You need to design the, the campaign image to get, decide whether or not it's going to come in. The reason Deadly Virtues got into Asda and Tesco and the reason we sold so many DVDs in the UK, mm. and remember 75% of all the DVDs in the UK are sold in those two places, of course, yeah. is because of the campaign image. That girl with her arms tied. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I'll give you the DVD, as I said, but... Twice a month, the head buyer of Asda and Tesco go into a room with a big long table with 200 uh, video boxes, and they know nothing about the movies except that 18 rateds at that end, PGs at this end, 12 15s in the middle. I haven't been there, but I was told by a friend who was that they walk up and down like this for five minutes, stroking their chin, and pick two from each section. Oh, okay, okay. So and they do that twice a month based on the pack shot. Good lord. So, as we say in our training program, get an idea for a movie, why don't you come up with the image, mm. test it out. If it doesn't work, why go through all the hassle of making the film if no one's going to pick it up? Because if no one picks it up... No, I mean, I mean I've spoke to filmmakers on the podcast who are using the kind of make the trailer for the film you've not made yet as the kind of next step, you know. So if, you, if you've got a concept that works, then yeah. you make yeah. a pretend trailer for the film you want yeah, to make yeah. so then you go is I'll give you I'll take 90 seconds of your time yeah. and if you as an investor or a buyer yeah. or whatever yeah. like that then maybe you'll want to support making the film yeah, yeah. I, I've seen that work it doesn't always work but I, don't. No, I, don't I have seen it work yeah. so I mean it'd be, it'd be remiss of me with, with my audience to not ask because I, I don't think from what you're saying is we're making advances and, and, and there's, the opportunities are exciting because it's not just about film but if we if we, if we go back to film because obviously Deadly Virtue is what you would call a tradition, it's a tra given what we've talked about it's VR, a it's a traditional film, you know, yeah. beginning, middle yeah. and end, yeah. heroes and villains. Yeah. So, what would be your advice to feature filmmakers? What would, what, can give, us, give us sort of two or three kind of pointers for those looking to get their film shown at festivals. Uh, well, you need to be extreme, and there's three different types of extreme. Okay. There's extreme storytelling. So you want to take a topic that is extreme and... Um, you can go really overboard, like the French so-called new wave went into sexual violence in order to get noticed. I, I, don't, I think that's immoral. I don't agree with that. But your story has to be, A, a story, and it's some element of extreme. So the, the things like Tangerine with the um, transgender stuff, and that's extreme. I would call that extreme, for mm. example. And that, that shot me eye for what you look Well, that's my second point, extreme filmmaking techniques. Can you come up a way of making the movie that's either super cheap or super different or super whatever, um, some sort of understanding of the technology that you, you bend? Mm. And remember, when they sell you a camera in a box uh, in Japan, they don't, they don't they don't sell you all the stuff on the first version. They've already done all the R&D because they want to release new products every six months. Yeah. So whatever bit of kit you've got uh, can do a lot more than what it says on the box. The reason they don't tell you what that it can do is because if you're not... They don't want you to call the helpline and say, how do I do that? So they, they make a camera can do this, and then they cut it back to this 
so you you get it without calling the helpline because that's expensive to support. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and the third reason, of course, and this is this is the hardest one to explain. It just needs to be extremely good. Mm. So your sound, your music, your acting, your story, your 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 your, your vision, your voice. It's just got to be. Extreme, extremely good. Well, no, it's it's, it's kind of like it's that it's that X factor thing, isn't it? If you can do, if you think you, you can delude yourself and then delude a third party, then you you are truly deluded, aren't you? If yeah. you think this will, if you're thinking this will do, yeah. then it won't, will it? That's yeah. the point, isn't it? I think yeah. With, with you make it, if you're trying to make a film, you've got to make the best film you can make. Yeah. Which I, yeah. it sounds a bit yeah. trite to say it like that. Yeah. And then, and then, in this day and age, of course, as a feature filmmaker, you need to consider the distribution. Do you have any social media uh, things that you can invent? Mm. A friend of mine uh, last year made a film called um, "The Beat Beneath My Feet" with Luke Perry, okay. about Luke Perry, 50 years old, uh, blackmailed to teach a six-year-old boy how to play guitar, whatever, whatever. So during the course of the filming, because they had Luke there and they had the boy there, who's very good, by the way, forgotten his name. They did a series of pretend YouTube videos of him learning the first song bad and getting better, better, better over the ten things. Yeah. And when the film gets its UK release, they'll release that as YouTube videos so you can tie into that. Do you see what I mean? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, so, a, like adding value to the, to the film itself. Yeah, so it doesn't... I mean, not every, every film has a different way. Maybe you've got an idea for a street marketing campaign. Maybe you've got a, an idea your film it could be event-based. Friends of mine, Stuart St. Paul, made a movie with um, Status Quo. He, mm. he, he knew they were going to Bali for a month's holiday. Bullet he knew that, I reviewed it on Netflix. He knew that they were doing a concert there. He knew they were coming back to do their UK tour, so he shot the film and then did uh, screenings in each city right before the concert. Yeah. And they've commissioned the sequel, aren't they? They're going to shoot in India, I think. That's the Is it? It went that well, yeah. I didn't... I haven't seen Stuart for a while. Yeah, I didn't yeah, know yeah. that. I went to their party in Berlin when they launched it, which was really weird to be with these guys that look like aged barrow boys who used to be rock stars standing in their shirts and ties with a glass of champagne. It was very funny. I used to, I used to manage a rock band and man, the band toured with Status Quo a number of times. Oh, so you know those Yeah, guys. yeah, yeah. So it was, like really cool. it was really cool to see the... I mean, yeah. the film obviously is more appealing to people that already like Status Quo. I think you need to be a fan of Status Quo. I'm not sure that <laughs> it was the greatest piece of cinema, but it's a lot of fun seeing it is them, fun. It's just them do Keystone fun. Cops. Yeah. Um, the, fun, the, one, the one I've liked as, as, as an example of where people have tried to sell a film through not traditional ways was, I don't know if you saw the story with Ex Machina at South by Southwest, where the actress who plays the android in Ex Machina, they set up a Tinder account with her face and then the, the, the robot, the AI, which is what the film's all about. Yeah, I've seen the film, of course. So, it t so the Tinder account talked the same way. So the Tinder account is manipulating men at South by Southwest oh, in hilarious. That's hilarious. <laughs> so men thought they were flirting with this sexy woman, but they were flirting with an AI. <laughs> oh, see, that's, that's genius. It's stuff like that. Mm. And, and, and the beauty is, no one knows what they're doing. It's a wild west out there. And every single idea you have, listeners, has potential to get off the so-called flat cinema. They call it flat screen and flat mm. web. We've got mm. VR and flat web, flat screen, flat movie. Mm. Um, and uh, to integrate things like that. But if, if, if by chance you just have something pretty basic that does not include any of those other elements, just make sure you're telling a good story. Mm. And um, 
maybe um, Stuart, this helps. I was in Japan four or five years ago doing a talk to screenwriters in Japan for a couple of days. I was there for a week. And one of the people in the group of about 20, it was a 72-year-old at the time fisherman, screenwriter, who had 52 Yakuza movies produced. Wow. One of them he sold to Tarantino, and that became Kill Bill. I was honored to be in his presence, lovely guy. He spoke perfect English, but if you asked him a question, mm. he would answer in Japanese. So on the last day, we run the group, we all had to say what we thought made a good film. Mm. So it finally comes to this wise, well-produced fisherman, now screenwriter. Mm. I said to him, what makes a good film? And he said, Elliot, our bodies as humans are 95% fluid. And when I sit in a cinema and watch a really good film, it squeezes my body fluids out of pores. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's a box of a crew, really. <laughs> You weep, you laugh, yeah, you, yeah, yeah, you yeah, yeah. get excited, you know. But I thought that was such a... I yeah. mean, if you can pull that off, it's yeah. all about the emotion, you see. It's the emotional experience. And we're finding with their sponsors now, they seek not sponsorship of the German shorts at Raindance or whatever. They're seeking experiences. Mm. Yeah, no, you can see as, as you, a bunch of them came the other night to the mm. ball. Yeah. And they're up and upstairs with a few bottles of bubbly and they thought, wow, we've been treated well. We've had a great experience. We love the band. We love da 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 da. Mm. And, and it's an experience. Now, if you if, go back to where we started, then you say Raindance was started as a thought experiment that then turned into a yeah. festival, which has turned into yeah. production, turned into a ball, turned yeah, into yeah. VR, turned into a master's program yeah. and stuff. What. What would you? What, what what would that Elliot Grove back in ninety one ninety two say? Looking now at two thousand sixteen, at what's happened? Oh to my that God! Experiment. I I I've just gone from precipice to precipice. I you know, and I've fallen a few times and smashed on the cliffs. And fortunately, there've been enough people like you that have helped pick me up over mm. the years. Um, I did Wednesday night with you at the all, almost a thousand people. Mm. I allowed myself a few moments of satisfaction that the beauty is Stuart no different from you and Birdflex you have an idea for something and mm. then you see it mm -hmm. so my next big idea is having the masked or costume ball on Halloween <laughs> maybe that won't work maybe people like you won't want to come because so you're too so that was born out of Wednesday night rather than any sort of Wednesday night I got there at four to make sure everything's set and the, and the manager was there and I said maybe we should do this again she said that's a good idea and I'm thinking oh and we went into her office and she looked at the diary. Monday, 31st of October is available. Bloody hell, that's fantastic. <laughs> so, a, a nice happy accident as much as well, well, if you want to do anything in life, you need to pick what it is you want to do. You need to pick a date. And if you want to do an event, like a festival, you need a cinema or a venue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, boom, you just go like that. And, you know, it's, it's not that... It's not difficult. It's just... Fucking hard work, you know. Yeah, so. Yeah, yeah. so, on finally, then, what do you want? Is there any any date, any key dates coming in the near future that you want to? Well, we've got to? yes, indeed. We have the opening night of the Raindance Film Festival on the twenty first of September. A picture house central this year, the the one we use in Leicester Square is closed for renovations. We moved there, and then for the next twelve days in the centre in Piccadilly, we'll have a hundred of the, what we think are the best features and feature dogs. We have about. Uh, 65 shorts, uh, VR days, Webfest, 
all that stuff. Mm. That's what's happening. And of course, our website, uh, stuartraindance.org, mm-hmm. uh, lists all of our events, not only here, but in our so-called hubs in Toronto, New York, Los Angeles, Paris, Brussels, Berlin, Budapest, and as of a few months ago, Beijing. Fantastic. Well, look, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for listening. And I hope I don't come across as too much of an egomaniac, but everyone says, I, I hurt my shoulder Wednesday night, Stuart. Did you? Why? I can hardly move, because I've been patting myself on the back so many times, I've sprained <laughs> my shoulder. <laughs> anyway, thanks. Nice one. If you don't already subscribe to BritFlix, just sign up for free at iTunes, and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at BritFlix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.